Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19 through the end of the psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Luke 19, verse 28 through the end of the chapter. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 
but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is Palm Sunday. We have spent now three years uh, celebrating the church calendar in a formal way. The prior year, we had been doing introductory work in order to prepare our hearts and our minds to be able to celebrate it well, and we have now completed a series of teachings in all the Gospels this year, having spent most of the time in Lent in the book of Luke. And Luke here is writing about a confrontation that goes on even in the midst of Jesus entering the city in a triumphal uh, display of his power and of his glory. And it's, it's hard to notice at first that these are actually not just coincidentally placed accounts of what's going on. Jesus is intending to go to the capital having completed a campaign of war in the spirit throughout all the rest of the land. If we, This harkens back to the time in which God brought Israel into the land by Joseph, how the various tribes were to go throughout the land, all the land that God had given them, which they never successfully and fully did, speaking of their need for, for Christ, but, all, but not just on a country level, but in each individual tribe never even reclaimed all the land that they were to take. And so Jesus is bringing about a new entry into the land, a land that had been corrupted and become exactly like it was before Israel came through the land, which was a land filled with idolatries, a land hostile towards Yahweh, even though these were the people who Yahweh had chosen and had put his name upon. These were the people of God, and yet Jesus is coming into their very capital city, and he comes to be opposed. If we, if we go back to the time in the, in the temple when Simeon is prophesying to Mary, Jesus Christ is the sign that God has appointed for the rising of many and the falling of many, and as a sign to be opposed. As he enters, he intentionally invokes in the minds of his uh, Israelite companions, those who know the scripture, he intentionally invokes the understanding that he is identifying himself as king by doing what he's doing. And so we're going to look at how this intentional entry is a capstone and a, a celebration or the final stroke of grace or the final stroke of power that Christ does in showing that he is victorious over those things which are plaguing the people, those things which are keeping them in spiritual blindness. And then from there, that very intentional fulfillment also becomes an intentional speaking, a, a confrontation with the Pharisees, and then very, uh, very lovingly and graciously entering into the temple, even though he has already pronounced that the glory is departed and that he has renounced the temple. And so Jesus Christ here is not just doing something that was necessary for our justification. He also is providing something that we should emulate. That is, Christ is doing something in this passage that we should learn from, adore him for, and then seek to do in our own cultural context. The gospel is not just that Jesus Christ saves us, it also that he is Lord and that we have been commissioned as disciples to announce that lordship and to then declare it 
and call people to repentance. And that's exactly what Christ is doing. The heart of mercy that Jesus displays, even as he weeps over the city and then enters into the temple, which is doomed, he does so to say, even in the midst of judgment, God desires mercy. He longs that sinners would be reconciled to him because he himself, Christ himself, is reconciling the world to God, as Paul tells us. That Christ reconciled the world to God by his death and in his body. And so here we see this beginning of the Passion Week, the very final steps that Christ takes, ending the time that we might recognize as his earthly ministry, moving into the focus on his passion, his suffering, and his death, the final teachings that he'll give inside the city of Jerusalem, being intentionally placed at the Passover. We're going to see how the Psalms and Luke's account shows us that Christ is intentionally doing this. It's not as if he was caught off guard. It's not as if he was tricked, deceived, or overcome. He willingly lays down his life. And as we go and prepare for Good Friday and Easter, we have to understand this. Christ is not a victim of the culture. He's not a victim of the leadership. He died purposefully, and he died in order to show the Father's heart of mercy. And so with that in mind, I want to look at four aspects. His fulfillment of prophecy being intentional, his intentional uh, running into the midst of the most dangerous place in the country, the prophecy which he gives about the destruction of the city, which is often neglected and completely uh, not spoken of. I actually have, as I've been encountering this doctrine more and more through the text of Scripture, I've kind of had my ear to the ground on the various national ministries that I uh, hear from and learn from, and they're very strong on justification by faith. They're very strong on the need for repentance and the need for Christian maturity and participating along with the Spirit as we seek to live out being disciples. But they do not at all emphasize this major important part of the Gospels, which with, without which we cannot see Christ's merciful heart. Because the, the thing which he does on the cross in order to justify us does not apply to the church alone. It also applies to the covenant people of God, which became the church. That is to say that the church, which is one throughout history, being in the old covenant and new, the same people group, God's chosen people who he knows, that people group is first reconciled by Christ atoning for their sins, for their national sins. And he does this at the Passover, as we're going to see, in order to fulfill the great feasts and the great sacrifices which God had given their, that nation in order to point them, saying there needs to be an atonement. Sin and guilt still remain year after year. Christ is the Passover lamb, and he does this invoking Psalm 118 intentionally. He rides in the, into the city this way in order to celebrate. And finally, we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple. The reason why the cleansing of the temple is so helpful is to see how exactly we are to, as I mentioned earlier, emulate Christ in the midst of a culture that looks like, for many indications, it is descending into deep hostility to the gospel and therefore societal corruption. And so even as we live in America in a time right now where uh, there is this temptation to be somewhat revisionist and say everything's getting worse, and at the other time there's this this temptation to be just blindly optimistic, everything's getting better. Neither is the case. There are great signs of spiritual collapse and blindness in our land. And as Christians, we have to understand how should we respond to this in the light of the work of Christ. So with that in mind and with that end goal, that trajectory that we want to go on, let's get into 
the psalm. Uh, before we get there, though, having celebrated the church calendar now for, for three years, I, I think it's helpful to remember that when we've focused on different seasons, we see often how Christ fulfills prophecy not by his own action, but rather by the action of God working through his parents. So for example, in Advent, when Mary is told by Gabriel that she will bear and conceive a child, we, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, where Isaiah says, there a virgin will be will conceive and he will be called wonderful he'll be the counselor he'll be the benefactor of the government the government will rest upon his shoulders and he'll have a kingdom which grows forever we see that in advent and that's not something that christ does and we see this exactly the same way in christmas for example the shepherds or the place of christ's birth being in the city of bethlehem over and over again the prophecies of malachi for example malachi 3 and 4 come to pass because Caesar, by God's sovereign choice, calls a census, and Joseph, being from the town of Bethlehem, has to return there even while Mary is pregnant and so that Christ would be born in that city. All of these details, which we know and often hear about, especially when you hear someone like an evangelist spreading the gospel, we think of them often as just things that were outside of Christ's control that were fulfilled by the faithfulness of his parents, the visitation at the temple, his circumcision on the eighth day, the prophecies made over him as he went up to the temple. These things were, of course, done by his parents, but that is not to say that Christ never knowingly, intentionally invokes prophecy and fulfills it in order to say something. It's a very subtle error, but sometimes it's made that we hear when Jesus fulfilled a certain number of prophecies concerning the details of his birth, the time, place, and history, uh, the, the place where he comes after a series of kingdoms, according to the book of Daniel. All of these things are important to understand from the way that God himself orchestrated events for Christ to be born before Christ has physical agency in his flesh, which he takes on in the incarnation. But even once he's alive, he intentionally invokes these understandings in his hearers. It is not just that these were circumstantial or accidental fulfillments, but rather they were deeply intentional. Christ is attempting to communicate to the people of God. He's invoking these psalms, these prophecies, in order to say and declare publicly without anyone being able to say, I never knew or I didn't understand. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Son of God in the flesh. And so Christ does this intentionally. He does this in order to make it plain, and we see this exactly happen when he commands the disciples to fetch this colt. Now, this colt is an animal which was uh, actually a, somewhat of a prophetic sign of the people. This was a colt which had not ever taken a rider. If you've ever worked with horses, you know that breaking a colt is very difficult, and yet Christ tells the disciples to take this colt, this untrained, young, probably young animal that was not used to a rider, and he sits down on it and leads himself and, and rides into the city of Jerusalem. Of course, this is a direct intentional fulfillment of prophecy that Christ knew and his hearers knew, and so he did this in order to make a statement. In Zechariah 9, 9, we see, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. That is, Christ is intending to bring reconciliation to the people of God who live in Jerusalem, and yet, in just a very short 
number of verses, we'll see that he himself knows that they are not going to have any of it. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The foal just means a, a young one or a young, young donkey. And so Christ is attempting to communicate, I'm the king. And he, he rides into Jerusalem, not as just some uh, you know, cultural commentary on the weakness of Israel versus his strength. He does it as the final uh, victory in a series of victories over and over again. It is without doubt that his disciples and most of the crowd knew exactly what he was doing and therefore begin to praise him as king. And they sing the very psalm which we recapitulated in our song today as we sang Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, invoking that sense that Isaiah has that the train of God's robe fills the temple with glory and that he's that all in the temple cry glory as Christ himself comes into the city, the people sing this song, and Christ identifies himself as this very king. Psalm 118, as we read in our reading, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, Christ does not just come to Jerusalem to visit the city and have some sort of political interaction. He comes to the city in order to go to the temple. And these very ones who are praising Christ as he is entering the city are praising him based from the temple. And they're fulfilling this psalm, which speaks of our Lord beforehand. Verse 27, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon Him, upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. It's often hard for us to understand because the, the details of Scripture are sometimes very difficult unless we're paying very studious attention. But Christ goes up at the Passover feast. And here we see in this psalm a call from the people who are worshiping at this point, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the very next verse is that the, the feastal sacrifice, the Passover lamb, would be brought, would be slain. And so this psalm is kind of pointing forward to, or it's giving an illusion of what is going to happen. And so Christ is coming into the city intentionally, not just to confront the religious leaders, not just to lovingly teach and warn, but also to, ver to be the very thing which the judgment belonging to the city will ultimately fall upon him before it falls upon them, those who do not place their trust in him. Christ coming in the name and the authority of the Lord shows himself not only to be Yahweh, but to be the sacrifice which Yahweh commands. Look closely, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Christ himself, when he left Jerusalem's temple in Luke 13, as we're going to briefly interact with in a few minutes, ago, a few minutes from now, he says that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some people in the city welcome him in this time, at this time, but the city as a whole does not. As we see very quickly in just a few number of days when Pilate is telling the, telling the citizens of Jerusalem that you have a custom and it's custom that I release one of your prisoners and they choose a man who's a murderer rather than choosing Christ the very son of God, sinless, spotless lamb. And so here, it's not, it's not to be understood that the same group or same crowd turned from praising, saying Hosanna to crucify him. It's not necessarily the case from the text that that happens. But what it is the case, at least, is that there is a group which welcomes Christ and there is a group which does not welcome Christ. 
And so even from the Old Testament, we see this, a mixed multitude goes up with Israel as they leave Egypt. There's strangers and aliens who live in all of their towns, and even some of the people, and indeed most often it is the, the Levites, they themselves who turn away against Yahweh and the kings who who bring the nation into idolatry, the prophets who prophesy lying prophecies. And so we see this remnant welcome Christ, and yet he understands the vast majority of the city wishes to have nothing to do with me. And so he himself identifies as this sacrifice, the true Passover lamb. Just as his fulfillment of prophecy was intentional, so also Christ's interaction and prophetic Uh, declaration was intentional. His decision to go to Jerusalem was done knowing, positively knowing, that he will die there. And this actually is kind of a message of the gospel in and of itself. When we think of God's kingdom, we often think of a, a kingdom which does not operate in our natural understanding. And it's actually kind of a, an in, interesting aspect of following God. Whenever you have a compass, you know, unless it's been cl put close to a magnet or it's damaged, it always points north. And in the kingdom, essentially, whenever it points north, we should always head south. Because God's kingdom, as we see in Christ's action here, is completely foreign to the, to the natural mind. The mind which is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. And the mind which is set on the spirit is life and peace. It's able to please God and be welcoming to him. Christ had performed cures and defeated demons throughout the entire land and then enters the city to declare a final victory, which we see on the cross. And it's the capstone of a campaign of victory. So in Christ's birth, the presentation at the temple, the ministry and teaching, he had driven back the powers of darkness. It was a series of successive and progressive victories over the power of, of evil, liberating God's people from those things which oppressed them. It was not simply a message of a future salvation which would come when they die, but rather a salvation which he brought in time and in space to individuals and families over and over again, healing some, raising from the dead some, opening the eyes of those who are born blind, opening ears. They were little tiny progressive defeats of the devil over and over again throughout all the regions of Israel. And here he comes into the city to do war with the Pharisees and the leaders of the capital. His entry into the city is the parable of the nature of the kingdom, as I <clears throat> alluded to earlier. It's completely opposite of what you and I would expect. Earlier in Luke 13, he's warned by the Pharisees, get out of here, Herod's seeking to kill you. And he then says to them, you tell that fox that I do miracles and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my journey. That is to say, Christ knows what he's going to be doing. And he is not going to be dissuaded by an announcement that someone wishes to kill him. He knowingly, willingly enters into the place where he will die. Think about this. If you were told like, hey, uh, John, don't go in your house. There's a robber in there. Wait until the police get there and then go in. I would, it would be as if I responded, no, it's totally fine. I'm going to deal with this guy. And, you know, like it's, it's totally, con it's like running into a burning building. It's running into a mob. Jesus Christ is told they're going to kill you. And he declares, I'm going there on purpose. I have a mission to accomplish. And the resolve of Christ com uh, combined with the mercy that he shows in, in what he does by warning them of judgment and teaching in their temple is unthinkable. 
it's totally foreign to what you would expect you would do or what, what Christ should do. But rather, even as Peter himself rebuked Christ for saying that he would suffer, Jesus responds to Peter saying, your mind is not on the things of God, but the things of man. This is God's wisdom, and it's the very nature of the kingdom. Everything in Christ's life and his kingdom seems upside down. Look at the beginning of Christ's life. Mary, who never knew a man, is able to have a child, and indeed brings forth this child. It's contrary to the natural mind. The child without any training, a child who was only probably 12 or maybe 11 years old, is in the temple, and he's debating with the best theologians of that day. Imagine, for example, going up against Tim Keller, John Piper, Peter Lightheart, anybody that you think or know is a great theologian. It'd be like me going with D.A. Carson if I was like eight, you know? It would be unthinkable because this person has wisdom. He's a doctor. He runs multiple universities. He is the president of the Gospel Coalition. He, he writes books on, and commentaries on the scriptures. It's absolutely unthinkable to the natural mind that a child would display more wisdom than the religious leaders of his day. And he debates with them, and they're in shock. It's not just as if they put up a clip on YouTube and it got a lot of comments saying, he got, you know, they got schooled. This kid is amazing. They themselves were caught in awe. They themselves were, were thinking, how is this possible that this child, this young boy, has such learning? It's in, in Christ's teaching, he explains the very same aspects. This is so important to understand as someone who is a disciple of Christ. God's kingdom is not the way that you would run it. It's not the greedy, the powerful, and the ambitious who inherit the earth. It's the meek. Now, we don't think that's true, and sometimes it doesn't look like that's true, but over a long enough timeline, God takes the things which belong to arrogant and proud men, proud cultures, proud people groups, and he transfers those things to his people and those who are truly humble. In God's kingdom, to keep your life, you have to lose it. You have to lay it down. In order to become wise, you must become foolish according to the wisdom of this world. In in order to become great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be the servant of all. Remember the disciples over and over again are, are debating amongst themselves, saying which one's the greatest. Oh, well, Peter, James, and John, they often had a lot of ammo. You guys didn't go, get to go on that mission. We got to go on this mission. He didn't take you up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He took us. Over and over again, Christ is saying, if you wish to be the greatest, you have to serve everyone. You have to serve everyone, even, even those who you think are unworthy of service. And so God's kingdom is completely upside down from what we would naturally expect. And this is essentially the heart of the gospel. In order to be acceptable to God, you first have to acknowledge your unworthiness. When the, when the uh, people came to Jesus in John 12 and said, you know, what is the work that God requires us to do? He says, the work that God requires you to do is to believe on the one whom he has sent. Essentially, he's saying the the work which you seek to do is no work at all, but rather it's a disposition of heart. It's a placing a permanent trust on someone named Jesus Christ. Christ has this wisdom in his life, and so he willingly and intentionally, even joyfully, as Hebrews says, he joyfully enters the city, and he intentionally goes not only to die, but also to give them a warning. 
Upon coming near the city, at this point in the text, Christ sees it, knowing that they will solidify the blood guilt which is already on them, and so as to bring a final condemnation upon them by killing him, and then after that, killing his apostles and disciples that he sends. Christ, in this way, shows the true heart of prophecy. See, prophecy is not just, you know, kind of like what uh, we have today on TV, especially late at night. You see these people who are uh, charlatans, they... You know, in the days in days ago, they used to go around in carnivals, and they would tell you something. They'd look at you and say, you know, oh, you had a really bad week last week, and they'd probably just be reading the puffiness under your eyes or something like this. Or, or they would seek to, by demonic forces, uh, foretell the future or tell something about your past. Often they're just doing these things called cold readings, and you can learn all about that. But it's, it's witchcraft. Whether it's cold readings or it's actual involvement with demonic activity, they attempt to foretell the future or say, oh, you had an aunt who died recently and, you know, she's still upset about this. They're diviners. They're mediums. They're, they're occultists. This is, these are things that God commands against in his law. And so prophecy is not just some sanctified version of foretelling the future. Like next year there will be a tsunami or, you know, next year the winning lottery tickets will be this and you should give your money to the church or something ridiculous like that. Prophecy is not just foretelling the future. Prophecy is invoking and being incarnately, that is in your person, a living expression of the warning of God and the desire that God has for reconciliation. Christ being the greatest prophet shows himself as this by giving a clear warning without any couching of language or veiling of speech, without pulling the punches, and yet at the same time weeping and demonstrating the love that God has for the citizens of Jerusalem. He warns them clearly there is coming a time when you will be surrounded and you will be destroyed, you and your children, and yet he weeps over it when he says this. I, I must confess, as I've been studying the scriptures and reading over and over again the, the waywardness of Israel, their idolatry, their perpetual perversion of God's good commands and turning them into bad commands, and you're tempted at times to say, what's wrong with you people? God's given you everything. He's given you a land. He took you out of Egypt. He destroyed that nation through signs and wonders. He made all the nations before you melt like wax. He brought you into houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, cisterns you didn't dig. He gave you everything you could have wanted, and yet you hated him. And yet this is, in a way, actually a demonstration of everyone who has sinned, and everyone who has sinned includes everyone who has lived, save for Christ. This is a demonstration on God's part that he is only the one who has any involvement in the reconciliation of individuals and people groups. He is the one who causes faithfulness to come amongst his people. Faithfulness is not in his people. Over and over again, the Old Testament, if it has one message, is they need a savior, they cannot do it themselves. And so we, we know God's law being intentionally placed in that country. They never, ever receive it. Even though they say willingly they'll do it from the very moment that they're given it. Be, even before the tablets come down from the mountain, they've already gone off in idolatry. And so here, Christ is, is moving past that fleshly frustration that we would be tempted to think that, oh, those Israelites are so bad, but we are 
the righteous ones were faithful. We see ourselves in this righteous light, but we are critical and condemning of others. And so Christ is moving past that and actually enters into the very mercy that his father has for these people. He longs to be reconciled and so displays the true heart of a prophet, not only giving a clear warning, which we often do not do today, and also lovingly, patiently weeping over those who are being led to death. And so in verse 41, it says, And when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. See, Christ is not desiring that they would be destroyed. The the Bible is very clear. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in their downfall. And yet, it's a sure thing because their heart is bent on destruction. The parable of the vineyard owners will come true completely. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. And they're not hidden from their eyes by God alone. They're hidden from their eyes because they would not have it. They do not want it. It's kind of like when we, decide, when we describe people who are unable to, to renounce an addiction or get free from an addiction. It's not just that they don't have the ability. They don't have the ability because they don't want the ability. The motivation internally of the citizens of Jerusalem is bent on death. And Christ says, would that you knew what would make for peace, but they don't want peace. Who could be more patient and merciful than Christ? Consider this, when you've lost, I, just, to, just to be very clear, you know, pastors or elders, they lose their tempers. You, do you ever know that? I lost my temper this week and it wasn't, it wasn't super ugly, but it was really ugly. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I, I, I got mad at my wife and I, you know, I had, had carried some frustration from work down into the kitchen and, uh, and I just raised my voice and I almost never do that. And it wasn't even very loud. And I apologized right after it. I was like, man, I'm such a sinner. I'm terrible. I was angry at you for no reason. And, and what I, what I have to say is that was like a momentary frustration, a very fleshly, carnal response, which I was given grace by God to see and repent of. But consider, for example, what Christ is going through. For millennia, for millennia, the people that he has chosen have hated him. Think about that. The, the very people that he has pledged an oath to. Who could be more patient than Christ? At this very moment, he understands the Father's heart desiring to be reconciled, and yet they don't want anything to do. Even when knowing their judgment has come, he longs for them to be reconciled. He longs for it. And this is important to see because without understanding the prophecy of destruction that comes on Jerusalem within that generation, you cannot understand Christ's merciful heart and see the pattern by which we're supposed to emulate him in our culture. So the blood guilt due to Jerusalem is absolutely full, and Christ is in this moment, if you've ever spent time studying Ezekiel, he's like a greater Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told to take a tablet or a brick and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. This isn't the only time in history that a siege has happened. And God tells Ezekiel to lay on his side for 300 plus days, and then lay on his other side for 40 days paying a bodily, if you will, atonement or a judgment against that 
city. And God says to Ezekiel, this will be a sign for you. This is kind of like what Christ is doing, seeing the city afar off from him, and then beginning to prophesy the destruction that's coming to it. Just as Ezekiel, as it says in Ezekiel 4, bears the judgment in his body, so also we know that Christ will. See, when we teach the destruction of Jerusalem as a major part of the gospel, we do not mean that Jerusalem fell under a judgment that Christ was unwilling to receive, but rather, actually, Christ willingly receives the judgment which is due on the people for the remnant which he will lead out. It's important to understand that that remnant is always there. If you look time and again through the Old Testament, God always preserves a faithful remnant in his people. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. This is to be contrast when he says, I wish that I would have been able to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. The idea being there that Jerusalem will be surrounded by one thing or another, either righteousness, or if they hate that righteousness, wickedness, evil, and war. And Christ prophesies this, and it certainly does come to pass. So why is it important to understand this prophecy of destruction? It's important to see it because without understanding it, you cannot see Christ's heart of mercy. The cross just becomes this kind of ethereal thing that applies later through the message of reconciliation to the Gentiles. But without understanding the judgment and the warning, then it doesn't make sense on the people. If God, as Paul reasons, if God does not spare, did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. It's important to see Christ's mercy and also a true and righteous judgment and warning for us today to not apostatize and to run away from God ourselves. So even though Christ knows Jerusalem is not going to be spared, he enters into the temple, and he does so as a mission of mercy. Now, what I think is amazing here is especially understanding this in the book of Luke. Earlier in the book of Luke, Christ had already cleansed the temple. He came and saw what was going on in the temple. He judged it. He threw all of the evil practicers of usury and theft. He threw them out of the temple in Luke 13. And he comes back, and they're back in the temple. They're back in the temple. He re-cleanses it, and he re-cleanses it for one purpose. Even though that temple is doomed, he doesn't cleanse it to reclaim it. He cleanses it to enter it for a short amount of time in order to teach those who would hear. This is amazing to me. Even though he brings a visitation of wisdom and truth, the Pharisees and leaders wish to kill him. Look at this at the end of Luke 19, verse 47 and 48. He was teaching daily in the temple. See, Christ pronounces the judgment and yet is still working for the benefit of the people. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Christ is warning them. He is teaching them of who he is. He's doing a final ministry of teaching in order to wake up those who are near slumber, in order to bring them to the point of reconciliation with God. And even while that temple is doomed, that temple will be destroyed, he is still trying to save who he can. I think it's important at this point to see that this was done for us and as an example for us. Christ's example here provides us with courage to sow in the midst of a dark culture. 
Christ being Lord, he has some to save even in our context today. This is often our temptation as we look at the culture around us, a culture which now for almost 50 years has tolerated perfectly willingly abortion, the slaying of innocent children. And not only has, have we tolerated that, we've moved beyond it. We've moved beyond it in many ways. One of them just recently happened in the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell, in which they found, through their own magical interpretation of the Constitution, a right to violate the law of God, to solemnize, supposedly, in a so-called marriage, men marrying men and women marrying women, so-called marriage, of course. And yet, in the law of God, it says that these people who do these things are worthy of death. And yet our culture seems to be renouncing God, violating his law intentionally, and upending his order, and we love it. As a, as a country, most of us, not now I'm not saying the remnant within us agree with it, but most of the country is embracing these things completely willingly. And so as Christians in the midst of a dark culture, we're often tempted, we should just detach, we should be completely separated from them, we shouldn't sow, we shouldn't build, we shouldn't invest. Brothers and sisters, that is not Christ's example here, and it hasn't been his teaching or his instruction to the people of God as they've been in exile. You see this a lot in magazines like Charisma, Relevant, uh, Christians Today. They talk, there's, there's articles constantly being written about how the church in America is entering a time of spiritual exile. That is to say, we're in the land, but we've lost our influence, we've lost our voice. Now, I believe that's often because we're unwilling to be bold and we're unwilling to be clear for the sake of not offending some, but rather we shouldn't just simply detach from the culture, resign ourselves to a lower influence in society, but rather we should, as God has told his people over and over again, we should seek the welfare of the city we've been sent to. That's exactly what Christ does. Even though there's condemnation and judgment resting on Jerusalem, he enters the temple and seeks to save some. He speaks the truth and does not veil it at all. We, like Christ, ought to do this. We ought to invest, bring a return, plant and build, sow, harvest, mature, develop, create art, and invest in governmental efforts through local, local action and preaching the gospel to our neighbors and loving our neighbors. We ought to be whole Christians, not just Christians of thought or Christians of heart. We ought to live out our faith intentionally. And so Christ's lordship needs to be proclaimed and is proclaimed even in cities which hate his lordship. Many in the church, I already mentioned this, they, they speak of this exile, but this exile is not the final word of God. God always brings a return after the exile. This is exactly how Christ's kingdom operates. When things look the most bleak and the most ready for judgment and condemnation, it, when things look darkest, there actually is a great light which is coming. Now, I, I don't think you should take that to encourage darkness, but rather to understand that over and over again, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard. And what I'm advocating for you today to do is to see and savor the work that Christ did for your sake on the cross and through the, the resurrection uh, three days later, to see that, to savor it, to love it, and then seek to emulate it by living in a prophetic way, a way that is clear, that warns against apostasy from God, and also seeks the good of the city that you've been sent to. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is 
not only necessary, but he is precious. He is wonderful. He is beautiful in his action and in his teaching and in his living. God, we ask you that you would show us our deep need for him and that we would, being fed by that wonderful truth, that that would be nourishment and energy for gospel-motivated action in loving our neighbor, in doing various things to spread your gospel, in speaking the truth in love, in not veiling or concealing the gospel, but rather presenting it clearly. Would, Lord, that you would make our church that you would make our church a bright and shining light to this city here. Even as we've touched briefly this neighborhood, I pray, God, that you would allow us to take the gospel to people in this neighborhood and in this city, that you would also, Lord, sanctify your people in Dayton, that you would glorify them, that you would pour out your spirit upon the churches, and that you would make them shining lamps. Lord, we pray that you would help us to think about our culture in a way that we would understand we are to be building your kingdom even as you yourself brought it. We pray, God, that you would give us this wisdom in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen.